This podcast is brought to you by Voice of Vets. Voice of Vets. Hear it. Feel it. Feel it. Feel it. Feel it. Now, the world of COVID-19 has been incredibly busy following the address by President Silvia Maposa announcing that borders will reopen on the 1st of October. With a move to alert level one, we will gradually and cautiously ease restrictions on international travel. We will be allowing travel into and out of South Africa for business, leisure and other travel with effect from the 1st of October 2020. This is subject to various containment and mitigation measures. Travel may be restricted to and from certain countries that have high infection rates. A list of those countries will be published and it will be based on the latest scientific data that we will be able to get on those countries. Travelers will only be able to use one of the land border posts that have remained operational during the lockdown or one of the three main airports, King Shaka International, OR Tambo International, and Cape Town International airports. On arrival, travelers will need to present a negative COVID-19 test results not older than 72 hours from the time of departure from whence they will have come from. Where a traveler has not done a COVID-19 test prior to departure, they will be required to remain in mandatory quarantine at their own cost. All travelers will be screened on arrival and those presenting or exhibiting symptoms will be required to remain in quarantine until a repeat COVID-19 test is conducted. All travelers will be asked to install the COVID Alert South Africa mobile app Countries that have used this type of app have been able to manage the coronavirus pandemic quite effectively. In preparation for the reopening of our borders, South African missions abroad will open for visa applications and all long-term visas will be reinstated. The tourism sector is one of our greatest economic drivers. We are ready to open our doors again to the world and invite travelers to enjoy our mountains, our beaches, our vibrant cities, and our wildlife game parks in safety and confidence. Now, alongside that, there have been local and international calls for South Africa to reopen the borders in order to kickstart the economy and prepare for a post-COVID-19 world. While the president has announced that the country will be reopening its borders, there have been delays in announcing which countries our borders will be open to. To get an understanding, we are joined on the line by Sia Beniza, a political economist specializing in development 
finance, industrial development, and regional integration. Thank you so much, Putsia, for joining us here on the COVID Report. And firstly, what would a risk-adjusted approach to reopening the borders during this pandemic look like? So uh, using various methodologies, um, you know, basically honing in on the either the recovery rate or the current transmission ratings or in the full subset of countries, um, the country would then issue uh, what is similar to what the EU has done. The EU issues out a list of epidemiologically safe countries uh, that uh, it recommends other EU countries can open up its borders to. Obviously, being sovereigns, they have the choice, uh, but ultimately, given that there's a regional approach to the policies in the EU, the idea is that only visitors from that list of countries will be accepted into the EU. The alternative is obviously uh, issuing a list of sort of no-entry countries, but obviously, given diplomacy, uh, it's better to uh, view it from the sort of positive perspective of who you're willing to accept into your country rather than who you're blocking. Um, Yeah, and already there's been speculation that you know, there could be some pushback given that South Africa now wants to implement a certain uh, similar type of system uh, or might be even retaliation from some of our trading partners who will be blocked effectively. So I think either way you look at it, diplomatically, the right way is to use a list of uh, a methodology to determine a list of countries that fit your criteria and then publish that to the public and also inform your customs. Uh, who will obviously be the the administrators of your border control. We as a country are still waiting for the relevant ministers to to announce which country South Africa will be open to for travel. Why do you think it's taking so long since the announcement of the move to lockdown level one for us to be um, privy to this list? Sure. Uh, I think it might be due to some challenges, obviously, with the advisory councils that have been set up. Uh, There is this idea that uh, the Department of Health Minister has obviously disbanded the the technical committee that was feeding into uh, the command council. So it might just be an issue around delays on deciding on a methodology to use, but also different views on what um, criteria to use because, uh, as I said, you might want to look at it positively in terms of a recovery rate, but you might have still high um, infection rates in that country, regardless of, of the high recovery rate. In South Africa, obviously, the, 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 the risk-adjusted approach that took us from level two to level one highlighted the fact that we've got quite a high recovery rate. That works domestically, but given that you want to take a, a, a further step of assuring your risk uh, is mitigated nationally, you, wanna, you might want to look at it from the perspective of the current infection rates that countries have. And so it might just be an issue of deciding which criteria to use, which give different outcomes, obviously, uh, but also it might just be an issue of the technical capacity not being there to uh, finalize or come up with a uh, methodology that then uh, will speak to the list of countries. And then lastly, obviously, is the diplomatic issue. Um, the fact that uh, whatever list of countries we publish, whether it's you know, looking at an epidemiologically safe list of countries, there are countries that will be blocked. And it becomes a balance for the country of uh, blocking countries that have got the highest risk 
but also mitigating the impact in terms of your trade and economic recovery. So you might find that countries that are high on your economic trade list, such as the U.S., uh, or you know, strategic partners such as Brazil or India, uh, who are part of the BRICS uh, grouping, have still got high infection rates or they still don't meet the criteria to be on the green list. And so it becomes an issue now of crafting a methodology that will protect the country's response to COVID-19, but will not jeopardize the economic recovery process. So those are some of the things that are definitely leading uh, to, to, to the delay in publishing on the country list. And that sets us up quite well for speaking about the relationships between countries. The pandemic has shown us that there needs to be a regional integration economically and otherwise as borders remain closed to halt the pandemic. Do you think going forward that we will see more intracontinent and regional trade than we are currently seeing now and more relationships flourish post-pandemic because of the lessons we have learned during the pandemic? Yes, I think definitely. I think on the first part is in in terms of um, the reaction and uh, the impact of COVID-19 pandemic, the Africa region as a continent has been sort of the least affected. If you look at the death rates, um, yes, there are people who question the amount of testing and whether the statistics reflect the true reality. I mean, the numbers are very low, regardless, even if uh, you were to have sort of nationwide testing. For example, in SADC, uh, South Africa is the only country that has got more than 300 deaths um, as a result of COVID-19. Uh, yes, granted, these are the reported deaths and there might be some that are unreported, but this is paling in comparison to South Africa's death rate, which is upwards of 15,000. Um, so the fact is um, that in its own will make sure, and as the policy currently on the, on the international travel ban uh, states, the minister was quite clear that travel will be open for all African countries, and that already gives African countries a sort of first mover advantage to trade with one another to ensure that the economic recovery um, uh, is sustainable also, uh, is quite critical to ensure that we promote regional integration and expand the trade ties and the economic ties amongst African countries. So I think, yes, on the one point, it is the first mover advantage. And I think secondly is the other sort of uh, push factors now. The fact that your traditional markets, if you look at the export markets for most African countries being Europe and North America, are still dealing with the pandemic. And if other African countries follow the same policy in terms of their reopening of their borders, which makes sense given that these are uh, within the World Health Organization guidelines, we're likely to see a mirror policy that would exclude countries in Europe and North America. And as a result, would promote further uh, integration uh, amongst African countries and also other emerging uh, regions as well. I just want to latch on to something you mentioned earlier in a previous answer about a balance that needs to be struck between the countries that South Africa trades with and the necessity for the opening of, 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 of international borders to travel to other countries and how that will determine, that balance that needs to be struck will determine which countries will emerge as safe or the safest to travel to. Is there any way that a totem pole of sorts can be constructed with which South Africa can construct a list of countries that they should prioritize in allowing 
um, international borders to be lifted to travel to? And in what ways will this list of of countries be determined? Coupling in the need to strike the balance between making sure that it is safe to do so, but also that the the trade relationships we have established as a country with other international players aren't jeopardized by the selective approach um, by which uh, which borders will be will be lifted for travel and which borders will stay um, down? Uh, look, I don't think that there'll be a sort of totem pole approach of prioritizing countries. I think uh, the first thing to to acknowledge is uh, government will probably want to take an agnostic approach to this, meaning they want it to be based on as much of the science as possible rather than the political issue of the diplomatic ties, etc. And obviously, they're balancing two things. Um, yes, it is the containment of COVID-19, as well as promoting a sustainable recovery. Um, but I don't think that will be such an extent that uh, the country jeopardizes the public health response to COVID in order to prioritize specific trade ties. They will probably try and craft a methodology that is still based on as much of the science as I say, in terms of the infection rates and containment of COVID in order to, 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 to not jeopardize economic recovery rather than jeopardizing the public health response by encouraging economic recovery. And I think as, as, as you see, the same approach being used by other African countries and the rest of the world as, uh, you know, other countries also uh, embark on reopening of the international borders in order to uh, fully resume their recovery. The same type of methodology is likely to be used in any instance. And so as a result, countries that are either lagging behind in terms of their COVID-19 public health response will by, by default uh, be um, kind of um, disadvantaged as a result. But obviously what also the COVID-19 pandemic has, has taught us um, is that there are other ways of conducting business uh, through electronic means and other, uh, you know, international investment avenues rather than physical travel and uh, um, tourism per se. But so what I'm trying to say is that the countries that will be still struggling with the COVID-19 pandemic will rely on this as the rest of the world is unlikely to open their borders to them. And so as a result, what you have is something that uh, converges around the need to protect uh, the COVID-19 response, whilst also obviously not jeopardizing economic recovery. So yeah, it's unlikely to be mainly influenced by the politics of diplomacy and trade ties. However, that will, fall, that will be part of the response. I think primarily the response is to try and contain uh, the pandemic because it has such a severe cost, um, because it will also land South Africa, you know, on some or someone else's no-fly list if we don't contain the economic or the public health uh, response to the pandemic. And so really the priority is around containing the, the, the COVID-19 pandemic, which I think African countries in South Africa are still at an advantage if you compare the impact of a public health perspective uh, across the globe. And in your opinion, which countries do you think South Africa should prioritize in allowing to travel into the country? So, as I said, it has to be a public health response. So it has to be built on some kind of public health metrics that ensures that we don't compromise our own national uh, response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, and so, uh, yes, it, it must be based on 
um, some, info, some information of a combination of the infection rates, um, perhaps to some extent the recovery rate, although primarily what you're looking at is countries that are able to contain the spread, um, which is the only way we're going to actually manage uh, the virus in the absence of obviously a vaccine. Um, and then obviously a vaccine coming online changes the whole game entirely. Um, but I think right now as the main sort of strategy is containment, containment, I mean, as we've seen, we are expected to continue exercising social distancing and continue wearing masks. Um, really, it is about country, allowing countries that have managed to you know, flatten the curve, so to speak, by reducing their infection rates. And as I said, this already, given the, the current statistics we have on um, the pandemic, African countries are at the forefront of this. And I think it's a positive paradigm in ensuring that the economic response as well and the recovery, which is just as important, I feel, um, as the public health response will be sustainable as it will be encouraged to trade more with African countries and increase intra-regional trade um, and regional industrialization obviously follows as a result of that. Now, thus far, Mr. Peniza, we've covered around this discussion seems to lend itself to talking about scenarios where South Africa as a country is welcoming travel from outside borders into our borders. What um, what safety measures do you believe we should take as a country, as the country that has um, lived, that has dropped our bans on international travel? We're still in a situation of determining which um, countries can and can't be travelled to. But what safety measures will we have to put in place as a country to ensure that we do not see a second wave of the pandemic? And can you also walk us through how detailed and strenuous the preparation work will have to be in order to ensure passenger safety? I'm thinking about um, your ver- your various international um, Airbus carriers that will be allowed to operate as a result of, of this ban being lifted. So can you walk us through the ways in which we're going to have to be very meticulous with our approach and our preparation to ensure that as we welcome more people from outside the country into the country, that this does not contribute to the second wave of the virus? Well, I think the first thing to note is time is running out. Um, so government needs to issue that list of epidemiologically safe countries uh, yesterday uh, because uh, the borders, international borders, are expected to reopen on the 1st of October. And if we come close to that deadline and we still don't have a list or it's unpublished or unknown, it's going to create a huge amount of confusion, particularly at the borders, uh, as customs um, will need to exercise some kind of rules in terms of the travel restrictions. So the first thing is we need to publish that list and then is the communication strategy to prepare all of um, uh, our border officials in terms of the rules that are in place. And then secondly is to understand what are the actual travel flows within the region so that um, we have a coordinated approach rather than uh, finding, uh, for example, that uh, travelers who can't travel uh, into South Africa are trying to make their way into Eswatini or Lesotho, which would require them to stop over in Johannesburg, um, thus creating a sort of backlog, or but also undermining our own response in terms of the, 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 the border restrictions. This is why it'll be important then, having published a list to ensure that there's a coordinated regional response so that the list of countries is consistent across 
um, the region. And I think this is where the methodology now becomes quite important in ensuring that what we use as a methodology to come up with a list of countries is uh, robust enough uh, to be replicated by our neighboring countries or across the region. So first thing is the information communication strategy to the administration of, of, of our borders and then ensuring that we have a coordinated regional response um, in terms of the list of countries being consistent with our neighboring countries and across the region. I think those are really the critical steps that need to take place in order to ensure we have uh, you know, efficient management of our borders and the reopening and our re-engagement of the international community. Now, Mr. Peniza, how has the international borders being closed and travel bans being initiated impacted the aviation sector, the assortment of airline service providers and the industry as a whole? And how much time do you anticipate has to pass before a full recovery is made? Sure. Um, look, the aviation industry also tied to tourism and the restrictions on movement of people have been uh, the worst affected. Um, we've seen immediately, I think, months into the lockdown, uh, airlines coming into challenges. Obviously, with SAA, there were ongoing issues prior to COVID-19, but Airlink, for example, liquidated. We saw some of our domestic airlines also being under uh, financial strain. And so, really, moving forward, it'll be an issue of how quickly we're able to re-regulate or write regulation for the aviation industry that can be quickly adopted in order to adjust to a new normal. I think generally people are craving travel or uh, seeing other people as a result of the, uh, you know, the restrictions we had under the lockdown. But obviously then that has to be balanced with the fact of the economic impact of the COVID-19 has had on people's incomes. And so uh, what we see as a recovery possible for tourism and aviation industry is that firstly, there are going to be restrictions on travel moving forward. I don't think that those restrictions are going to be removed, even if we come up with a vaccine, uh, because there will also be that delay between the vaccine that's found to work and the distribution and it's uh, reaching all corners of the globe. So. Uh, for the most part, there's likely to be a continuation of travel restrictions on the aviation industry and tourism generally. And as a result of the economic impact of COVID-19, the numbers of people traveling is going to dwindle, particularly on international travel, as a lot of the restrictions will be, you know, uh, will be passed on to consumers. So what we can expect is rising cost of travel in terms of air travel, and so this is going to reduce the amount of international travel that's possible. However, you know, what's um, terrible or bad for the international travel and aviation industry is not necessarily the same for the domestic industry because, I mean, as we've seen, um, the domestic travel and tourism industry have been able to uh, benefit from the gradual uh, easing of restrictions, which has uh, allowed them to have a first mover advantage in terms of their own economic recovery domestically. And as I say, with the new normal and the expected future of the travel and aviation industry, there'll be less international travel and a lot more people will be uh, traveling either by road or alternative transport if aviation or airline tickets are expensive, but that still allows for domestic tourism to drive the recovery in terms of the economic recovery of uh, the tourism and aviation industry. 
how much this uh, will benefit the aviation industry is yet to be seen. But I think definitely aviation industry is under significant pressure right now. However, fortunately, on the other side, in terms of their costs, um, apart from their fixed costs, obviously, which continue to burden them, the variable costs around fuel, etc., are likely to be quite depressed as global demand for travel and fuel generally has led to depressed oil prices. And so currently oil being around 40 to $45 a barrel um, is going to benefit the aviation industry. But as I say, they're still going to face significant pressure from their fixed costs and uh, a reduction in, in demand going forward. How long do you expect to see the aviation sector have to wait before Airbuses can be occupied at 100% capacity for long-distance travels in relation to how, for example, minibus taxis have been allowed to operate at full capacity with the, with, with, with the special conditions to be considered as far as the continued fight against the pandemic and the... The, the scattered nature with which certain countries will likely drop their international um, travel bans. Can you, can you walk us through how much time you, you believe has to pass? Sure. I think, firstly, I don't think there's any restrictions in terms of capacity for the airlines. As far as I remember, uh, Minister of Transport uh, mentioned precisely uh, on the aviation industry that they don't have any uh, restrictions on capacity due to their filtration system, which works um, in order to sort of neutralize the virus somehow. Um, but you know, it's it's. I don't think it's going to be so. I don't think it's going to be a matter of waiting for some level of recovery. As I say, the restrictions on travel are expected to continue for at least another three to five or even ten years, um, and what is going to be sort of new normal in tourism and travel generally is going to be this sort of restricted travel, restricted in the form of having to wear masks, restricted in the form of having to produce a COVID-19 pandemic test, restricted in the form of having to quarantine where you don't have uh, proof of your negative COVID-19 status. So I don't think that um, uh, they're going to reach their so-called 100% capacity, mainly on the issue of lower demand. And so it is a point at which a lot of aviation companies and the airline industry generally is likely to downsize. Um, However, as I say, what happens, what's bad for the aviation industry is a different story for other modes of transport. So I think moving forward, a lot of the aviation companies will probably see themselves being under pressure to integrate with other modes, uh, whether that be through shuttle services, whether that be through uh, some kind of acquisition of road transport providers, uh, because you know uh, the customers that will be moving away from airline industry are likely to use road or rail transport, given that those are really the other only viable options. Um, so what I'm saying is the aviation industry is going to be under strain. There's not going to be any recovery back to a 100% or back to pre-COVID levels. Uh, and they are going to be forced to either downsize or diversify and capture some of the demand that's moving away from the aviation industry and into other forms of transport in order to sustain themselves moving forward. 
Mr. Sia Beniza joining us here on the COVID report, founder of the Political Economy Southern Africa Institute, as well as a fellow of the Public Affairs Research Institute, joining us here on the COVID report to talk us through the ways in which the move to lockdown level one has changed the game for those looking to exploit the opportunities that will soon be presented to them to travel the globe in the midst of the continuing fight against the COVID-19 pandemic. This is a discussion we are still going to continue. And this time we're going to have a look at how the prospective travelers, prospective passengers themselves feel about being able to travel to international borders again we are tackling the allowance on international travel and how this will look. And to unpack this further, we are joined by Mukhoshari Patudi, the owner of Group Travel Company. Thank you so much, Ms. Patudi, for joining us here. And firstly, please tell us more about your Group Travel Company and the destinations you have on offer for your clients. Hi, Supposite. Thank you so much for having me. Um, my name is Mokoshadi, as introduced, and I am from the Travel Plug. Um, so, so we've got packages um, for travel to Africa mostly for now. Um, we've got packages to Mozambique. We've got packages to um, Zanzibar for 2021. Um, so most of our, tra- our group trips have been postponed uh, to next year, the international trips. And then we also have local packages to Mpumalanga in November. Um, we're also doing the Northwest in November still. And we're doing um, also uh, Devon on the 2nd of October. So that's what's happening. Can we please get your sort of immediate reaction to the news of the move to lockdown level one? Do you think it's the right time? Do you think it's an appropriate move to lockdown level one? And uh, I think more both as a citizen of the country and then the owner of a travel, as a, of a travel business, how do you receive the news of the move to lockdown level one? Um, Kamelisha, I'm excited. Well, I was excited, but also scared. Um, Scared because um, I'm afraid because we travel in groups, groups of 16, groups of 32. So it's scary because one could come not knowing that they are COVID positive and it could affect the whole group. Of course, we're going to try and adhere to, um, we will adhere to you know, social distancing measures, we will sanitize, but we, we will be living close, we will be sharing spaces. And so it worries me a bit that um anything is possible because i contracted covid myself in july so i know how easy it is to get it so it's very i don't know it's it's like um i don't know it's it's exciting but it's also scary also because most of my clients contacted me last night some are excited others are nervous and they feel like they still want to wait it out a bit because they're afraid of traveling and they're afraid of crossing borders also the process is not easy because um, you have to present a negative test before you come back. So if we leave the country, coming back, you have to present a, a negative COVID test. So there's just a lot of admin that's going to go into it. So, yeah, I guess we're going to have to see how that will go. 
And more specifically, because the tourism sector thrives on social interaction and might take longer for businesses in the sector to return to full operation, especially considering those fears and the management that is required to travel during COVID, what mechanisms do you have in place to protect your business should, say, another lockdown occur? Um, So for now, um, the the best thing that we can do for now is really just um, I guess travel locally because there's also uh, some borders are not open yet. South Africa's borders will be opening yes, but other countries' borders are still closed, um, so we won't be able to go everywhere, especially in Africa. Um, South Africa was um, hit the most, so I don't think other countries will also open their borders to us yet. Um, so, but the best thing we can do on, on my side for my clients will be to, to, to I'll supply masks, I'll supply sanitizers, um, we'll try and make sure that the vehicles that we use are not, uh, what, full to capacity, um, yeah, so that we can adhere to. Also, the villas that we share, we'll make sure if it's an eight-sleeper villa, it is the six people instead of eight, and yeah. Also, I don't know. For now, honestly, we're in recovery mode. I really have no idea, honestly, how um, how we'll survive another pandemic, especially now. But because of the COVID-19 experience, I guess when we are fully operational, I don't know. I mean, we, we need to save money because I saw how difficult it was to pay um, the guys that work with me. Um, throughout the lockdown because they also have to live. The guys that cook for my clients when we're on trips, my transport guys. Um, so, yeah, I think right now is just to save. And I'll also be um, a thing affiliating with the UIF because it's very important, I've realized. So a lot of learnings came out of the whole thing, actually. So, yeah. That's a great segue to my next question. Um, whether you were able to apply for the COVID-19 relief that was offered, and if you managed to receive it, how had this helped reduce the burden of operational costs during the lockdown? Um, I managed to apply for the COVID relief fund. We were given 9,000 rands. Um, it, it, it assisted for for a month uh, for a month uh, to pay my uh, my guys, but but that was it. It didn't do anything beyond that. But I'm also grateful because um, it, it's it was not completely dry. So yeah, the the assistance helped just for the first month, and then we had to struggle through the rest. Um, but yeah, the storm is nearly over, I believe. And now that international travel is permitted, how will you ensure your clients of their safety, potentially maybe some group testing? Do you think testing is a sufficient way to ensure that this is something that does not spread? And based off your COVID-19 positive experience, what are some of the key learnings you're going to take into the traveling? Um, I believe that um, testing, is, t- testing is sufficient. Um, the problem is if somebody is testing too early and they test negative while they are positive, which happened to me. But I will ask for a client to present a negative test 72 hours before we depart. Um, or that the test must be under 72 hours old. And then, yeah, that should, that should assist. 
With international borders opening on the 1st of October, how would this drive the market to demand to unprecedented level? Do you think that the 1st of October really can implement some massive change in your business? Hi. Um, yes, I believe that um, there's going to be, what can I say? There's a, there's a huge demand for, for international travel. I've already had clients that have asked that I uh, move their dates to the first week of, of October because they want to travel as soon as borders are open. I've got new clients. My phone has been buzzing today. Um, people want to cross borders. So it's business. Um, it's good business, but also... Um, Clients are still scared. So I don't know how, I don't know. I think I'm mostly still trying to figure it out because I've only had a few hours to, um, to, to start planning around how things are going to work. But um, so far, I think um, with the borders opening, um, the, the industry is going to start, what can I say? Um, there's going to be a traction on, on, the, on the decline um, in, in the tourism sector. So, yeah, things are, are going to start uh, getting better. We have just been joined by Mokoshadi Patudi here on the COVID report, taking us through the ways in which her company, Group Travels Company, will be set for the future to come in the wake of the imminent allowance of international travel in South Africa. As this podcast was brought to you by Voice of Vids. By Voice of Vids. To hear more of our shows, tune in to 88.1. Or stream by www.varfm.co.za. Hey.